Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm Anne McElvoy, here from The Economist. It's Monday night on Indivisible, so Kai and I are here to talk with you about the global context of the first 100 days of the Trump administration. We're getting close to that 100-day mark, and maybe as a consequence, we're moved to kind of go back to the beginning tonight. One of the many unique things about the past few months in our politics is the fact that Donald Trump's opposition has been so powerfully associated with feminism. After all, it literally began with a women's march. And so people of all genders have been asked to stand up and choose sides in what has become a culture war over gender. That's right, Kai, but there's also an interesting wider take on the subject of women in power that we've been looking at in various ways at The Economist lately. I suppose you could say the future of Europe and certainly the European Union is in the hands of three women. That's Angela Merkel contending for a record fourth term as German Chancellor, Theresa May leading Britain out of the European Union, and a challenger on the far right from the Front National in France, led by Marine Le Pen. Now, she's a woman shaking up traditional politics and voting allegiances, but in a way that worries a lot of people, given the Front is staunchly anti-Muslim, it's anti-immigration, and it has a really big anti-globalisation agenda. So with all of this going on both domestically and around the world, what we're wondering tonight is this. Four months into an administration in which gender is so powerfully relevant, is anything changing about the way you see gender in your everyday lives or how we all think about it in our politics? Listeners, has the way you see gender in your own life changed in any way since the election? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet us using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. We, of course, want to talk about politics. Do you see politics more or less through the lens of your gender? Maybe you've decided that gender is way too relevant. But we also want to talk beyond politics. Has the way you think about gender in your life in some way changed? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I want to say, obviously, we want to hear from women and we want to hear from people who identify as transgender, given how hotly those gender identities have been debated. But we also want to hear from men. We want to know how, how, how and why has the way you think about your gender changed also in recent months. Again, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And joining us for the conversation throughout are Collier Myerson, a contributing writer for The Nation magazine who covers social justice movements. She's been writing about feminist politics in the Trump era. And also Soraya Shamali, 
director of the Women's Media Centre Speech Project. So, Soraya, let's start by widening out to the global picture, if we could. We're asking our listeners to talk about what the Donald Trump election signalled to them about gender. And to so many women in the US, it seemed to be saying that majority of voters were willing either to overlook overt sexism or they were actually endorsing that overt sexism. What do you think Trump's election was really saying to women across and outside of the United States? So I think that Trump's election um, didn't actually show that a majority of voters were rejecting the idea that women should have equal access to opportunities or equality, however that might might be defined. Um, he didn't actually win a majority of voters because of our quirky electoral system. Um, but I think it sent a, a very uh, clear wake-up call to women in the United States and all over the world um, to not take things for granted. Um, usually in these situations, there's a very sort of vocal vocal group of people who are constantly pressing for awareness, and um, they, they tend to be on the margins. And I think that their concerns have moved uh, in many people's lives and imaginations and political concerns um, to to a more central place as a result of this election. In many ways, I suppose, the United States has been seen as the modern home of feminism. Clearly, there are other other countries who could lay claim to that, not least France, with intellectual feminism. But it has been seen as something of a practical beacon of hope, I think, for a lot of women and oppressed women, but also women suffering great frustrations elsewhere. Can that still be the case when the president has been elected, some are even talking about the, the groper in chief and now having the, the top job. Or are we over-indexing on that a bit? Um, no, I don't. I don't think that's that's actually possible. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's interesting because I, the situation that we find ourselves in right now, I I'm grateful for because, in point of fact, it is much more um, honest, I think, in terms of women's position in the United States, but also the state of feminism globally. We have this idea... Do you mean honest in the sense that... When you say it's on, more I, honest... I mean honest, in, I, I mean honest in the sense that really and truly, if you think of the scope of history and, and of feminism, we're just at the beginning stages of feminism in terms of... Um, human organization or political life and and we tend to think all right well well we live a lot of people think oh, we we live it in this nirvana and and the attitude behind that is more or less you know women here in the united states you should really consider yourselves very lucky and in point of fact that just kind of betrays this idea that um, women's rights exist in a pool unto themselves, and that our rights and, and, and humanity are somehow contingent on the greater vulnerability or suffering of women elsewhere. Um, and that's a failure of imagination, right? It's a sort of failure to think of a world in which our rights are not being regulated by primarily male-dominant governments in nation-states. Um, so, so my question was, how much does it matter that Donald Trump, I mean, we're talking about 100 days on mm-hmm. these shows, how much do you think it, it matters? I mean, when I made the point that maybe, you know, you could over-associate uh, on that, and you said, oh, you, well, that's not really possible. You know, he's such a, a strong figure in this debate. And yet many arguments, many campaigns 
still go on in feminism in the United States. So I suppose I'm asking you the, the big difficult question, what difference has Donald Trump made? I, I think he evokes a sort of visceral response in people um, in a way that I, I haven't really seen in in the recent past. And so I think he makes a huge mm. difference as a person, as a personality, because on one level, there is his quite blatant and egregious behavior. Um, and just prior to the election, there was an entire period of two or three weeks where millions of women, millions of women were experiencing real profound psychological trauma as the result of conversations about his own behavior in the wake, for example, of the Trump tape. And so you have the fact that every single day, men and women, but women in particular, are looking at pictures of this man, hearing pictures, uh, hearing his voice, um, and and knowing that he has the power to put um, his ideas into into policy, which is what he's doing. And so, you know, I think the the shifts that we're seeing away from funding women's issues, uh, women's rights, uh, women's health, those are real tangible things that people associate with him as a person. Collier, let me bring you into this. Um, you know, uh, we talked about the women's march. I mentioned the women's march at the top of the show here, and it was obviously a humongous deal. Um, and for many, it represented the kind of unity I, I hear Soraya talking about um, are maybe not unity. I don't want to put words, words in your mouth, Soraya, but th- this sort of mass awakening. Um, but for many, it was also representative of deep divisions in both the feminist movement and amongst women in general. Why Why is that? What was so challenging about the Women's March for some folks? Can you explain that? Right. I think a, a few, I think that folks, some folks, particularly women of color, felt a little sidelined, a little left out. And that's not the first time that that's happened, right? You know, um, during the suffrage movement, during the 70s women's movement, um, women of color, specifically black women, Chicana women, were always there, but were sort of written out of the the, the dominant narratives that we hear about these, these um, movements. And so I think that this was just sort of a resurgent um, issue, right? That like, specifically for women who have been um, integral in the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the, the movement for black lives, that... Uh, you know, we've been, you know, this is sort of, I think, what, what the, the narrative was, is we've been doing this work for, for three years now. And where have you been? White women. And, and that, a, a feeling that was made worse by the the actual election results where... 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump and actually 94% of black women uh, voted for Hillary Clinton. And so I think that that um, fissure was, was and division was, was strongly felt at, at the march with signs and, um, you know, feelings. So <laughs> what was the road forward for that? Or what is the road forward with that? Because I have to say, part of it when I hear that is, you know, it's hard to imagine an exclusionary mass movement, right? Like right, it's kind of, of an course. oxymoron on yeah. both sides of that yeah. conversation, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so what then, did anything grow out of that debate? Yeah, you know, um, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, um, Alicia Garza, wrote um, a really interesting piece in Mike about uh, feeling, having, having, being one of these, pe- one of the people to found Black Lives Matter and um, sitting on sort of, on on one of the sides of this issue of, and feeling like, yes, you know, I, I, 
understand that I've been a, like doing this work for three years, but I also know that we have to widen our net and we have to let um, and be amenable to an understanding of women who aren't as familiar with the, the rhetoric and the terms and um, the, the movement as as we are. Um, and so I think that she sort of opened the door for uh, a much sort of a more um, uh, in- inclusive conversation about feminism. We are talking with Collier Meyerson of The Nation and Soraya Shamali of the Women's Media Center about feminism in this Trump moment, both domestically and globally. And let's bring in some callers to this. Kathleen from Atlanta, Georgia. Kathleen, hi, you're on the air. Welcome to Indivisible. Hi, thank you very much. For me, this has been a real eye-opening kind of thing. I've, I'm an accountant, and we're very much I'm a t- meritocracy, so I haven't really paid that much attention to feminine, feminist issues until probably about halfway through the Trump campaign. And it started kind of getting into my consciousness that there were real serious things that were wrong. And I've noticed a big change in the way I hear words now. I'm much more aware of what I say and how many times I'll say, well, I just don't understand that, so could you explain it to me? Or then, you know, just kind of putting myself down so that a man will feel more comfortable and how I'm really trying to change that. I've gotten a lot more hyper-aware of the way women are treated, the way people talk to us, and also gotten a lot more activist about not just sitting by and really not paying attention. So it, it's really made a difference for me just in my everyday interactions with my coworkers, with my family, with people that I work with, the whole bit. And Kathleen, to make sure I understand you there, you, so you're saying that sort of before the campaign, you just didn't really think about it a lot, you would just sort of adapt yourself to men around you a lot of times and adapt what you had to say and, and downplay yourself um, and that now you've changed that. Is, is that is that that's what you're saying, right? Yep, that's what I'm saying. So how have I, people responded to you differently? Has have, 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 have you had a different than experience in how people respond to you as a consequence? I have. Some of the men in my life have been somewhat less than pleased with this. <laughs> they, <laughs> I was dying to ask. Uh, they, they told me that I need to, you know, the standard stuff about, you know, you need to really just calm down. You're, you're being too strident. You're being too loud. You're being mm-hmm. too this. And it's like, no, you don't understand. This is who I am, and I'm tired of being somebody that makes you comfortable. I'm going to make me comfortable, and I'm going to, ex- I'm going to show you that I am actually very smart and that I am very capable and that you cannot take me for granted anymore. I'm not going to be the quiet little shrinking violent you want me to be. I'm going to be me. Well, thank you for that, Kathleen. It's hard for me to, to think of you as a, a quiet, shrinking violence. <laughs> so apparently things have changed dramatically. But So I wonder what that then means for our politics, both um, Collier and Soraya. You know, if there are a bunch of women running around like Kathleen, that's a, that could be a, a yeah. significant change in America. Right. Yeah, I think it really boils down to um, 
feeling provoked, right? Like I think that Donald Trump is a giant provoc is one giant provocation. There's and it and it it um, manifests in different ways. There's um, and and his uh, White House and of course. Um, all of of the right wing. There's, you know, Trump weighing in on Bill O'Reilly's character um, and saying that he's an extraordinary, like that. First of all, like a, a president to weigh in on the character of a of a um, talking head is pretty strange. And and he's saying, you know, this guy is a good guy. I can I can tell you that you know this is this his is character. in reaction right. to Bill Riley Bill O'Reilly the news recently of his. Uh, Problems with some with settling sexual harassment lawsuits at Fox News. Right. And this is also piggybacking off of what happened to Trump, which we all the word that shall be (laughs) not said on air. Um, But, you know, uh, this I think that it's a giant reaction to Donald Trump provoking women all over the country Um, and just the optics of his White House. Um, and the way he ran his his campaign, it's he doesn't even give us an, the illusion that he's trying to to um, do anything different um, except rest the power of of um, in in the in white men's hands. I, and I think, go ahead. Can, can I just add something to what Collier just said? I think too that he did something that was quite um, typically unpredictable, but also fairly dangerous because. He kind of explodes the idea that the paternalism that American women are subject to, and we are subject to an astounding degree of political paternalism, um, he he gave lie to the idea that what we should be trading our rights away for is some form of protection. Um, because there are really no illusions about him. He says words and they have no meaning. And so when he says, I love women or I respect women and I'll protect women... Um, it's very clear that that's really not the case. And so it does beg the question of when other fairly traditional, very conservative, highly religious men say those things, what exactly are they saying about the public-private divide or about their um, sort of cultural entitlement to be political leaders? And so, I mean, I think the fact that we are now seeing thousands of women talking about run for running for office uh, in 2018 is a direct response to that provocation. We are talking with Collier Meyerson of The Nation and Soraya Shamali of the De- Women's Media Center about feminism in the era of Trump. We want to hear from you. How has you how have you changed the way you think about your gender, male or female, uh, in the Trump era? Has it affected your politics, your daily life? We want to hear from you. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We have to take a short break, and we'll be right back. For so many black people, The Wiz feels like home. home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. 
And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElroy here from The Economist. We're speaking with Collier Myerson of The Nation and Soraya Shamali about feminism in both domestic and global politics. And listeners, we want to hear from you as well. How has the way you see gender in your own life changed since the election, if it has changed at all, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And let's go right to uh, a caller who's been waiting for a while for us, Busayo in Brooklyn. Busayo, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Uh, Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling in. So so, um, this is a tough one. I think that I'm a black woman. I live in New York City. And I really, since the election... I think the election completely disrupted the way I thought about myself as a feminist and whether or not this was a banner under which I even want to belong. Um, I feel like, you know, I went to I went to vote. I did not like Hillary Clinton. I was a Bernie supporter. Um, but sort of doing the calculus, I made the decision that she was better than the alternative. And I think that there's sort of intractable truths that have to be dealt with in this conversation, which is as one of your one of your um, hosts said earlier, it's like what we see is what we get with Donald Trump. So people, we had all the facts at the very beginning, and 53 percent of American college-educated American white women chose patriarchy. They chose the pussy grabbing. Sorry to say, they chose everything that he stands for. Mm. They made that choice, and so for me, sort of watching the march was it was almost laughable because it was like. Were, were you were you women talking to your relatives? Were you talking to your aunties? Were you talking to... Sorry, I'm in New York City. Were you talking to the people in your family who showed up at the, at the polling booth and voted for all of these things that are so damaging to women? So I think the intersection of race and class and gender cannot be divorced for any, from any conversation about feminism. And frankly, for me, since the election, like, I, I, you can keep your feminism. I don't want it because it, it, it's meaningless, really. Do you think, if I, yeah, can I just ask you, do you think it's meaningless because it kind of didn't prevail politically? Because some people might say, well, that's quite a short-term view, given that this is, and we've reflected it in the conversation already. This is a very long story, isn't it? And the story of feminism goes back away and will go, go on away. Why give up now? Well, I think there's like, there's a problem of feminism not being all encompassing, right? So if you think about, you know, the movement for rights of women in the workplace, black women have been working from, from, from the very beginning. We had no choice, right? We were slaves and forced to work. So, so mm. every time you look at how this movement has been constructed from the beginning or talked about or the language used even within the movement and the way the issues are, are kind of characterized and categorized, Oftentimes, I think women of color, specifically black women's voices, are not reflected, right? So in terms of a long-range view, I, you know, I think about yes. sort of white feminism um, <laughs> it, and the election and the ways in which it essentially failed, right? Like people couldn't, this was well, a candidate that, though problematic, was exceedingly qualified 
and her fellow sisters didn't show up to vote for her. But from that, they, you've they, they no, a very, very interesting challenge you, you've thrown out there. And we, we might hear some more callers coming in off the back of that, that you feel effectively uh, it failed or at least it, it, it failed you this time around. Let, let's put it that way. Let me continue, if I could, peeling away the layers of, of what feminism is or what we think it is in the early stage of the Trump era. Is it just a backlash or a more slow progress that's being impeded a bit by Donald Trump being in the White House. We've had a flavour there of some of the frustrations and rather different views of what that might amount to. But every society still has its tensions or its double think about the role of women and the value we place on it. So, Soraya, if we take something, take this very powerful argument about men deciding women's health issues. It's a flashpoint around the Trump presidency, setting in place, for example, systems that could defund Planned Parenthood. That picture of that male group of deciders looking at questions like this. How do you read that? How do I read the, the, the Planned Parenthood? The that sort of sense of a male group making decisions on areas which, at least to a progressive or feminist mindset, should be primarily decided by women. So I think that's interesting because um, Busayo raised two issues that are very pertinent to what you just said. One is it's interesting to me that we still have this idea that there are women's issues, right? That comes from a very sex-segregated mindset that's that's very gender binary, that is infused with stereotypes. And so, yes, when we see a photograph of men sitting in a room together to decide how women should reproduce, it should be offensive, right? Men sitting in those rooms have no moral or ethical standing to be making those decisions. But in point of fact, they shouldn't be sitting in rooms like that to make decisions about the criminal justice system, about um, immigration, about state security. There is no place where that is appropriate. And so this idea that feminism exists um, in a box somewhere in between the intimacy of the home and the big serious issues that men have to concern themselves with is ridiculous, right? I mean, but that is the sort of, those are the parameters under which we're supposed to think about feminism. And so... Well, let me give you a, uh, let me give you, I could just give you a counterexample. As the writer Jill Filipovich, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, mm-hmm. she did use uh, that image of the men deciding on women's health policy as something that she thought, and you know, you know, no shrinking violet in this debate, she thought it was a particular gaffe in that it was meant to signal men are back in charge. Is that oh, yes. not really I what, agree the way with that her. you were reading it? Absolutely. I loved her piece and I thought that it, that, you know, the idea that this was a strategy, I agree with her. Um, but I think that that is what Trump ran on. He ran on a platform of a sort of strong white male border patrol mentality. He couldn't really talk to any crowd without talking about some group of black or brown men coming to rape women, and by women he meant white women. So, you know, it was either Muslim men or Mexican men or black men in the city, and so you can't you can't disconnect that from this 53% of white women who opted for patriarchy because reeling in the context that we were in, the political context and the conversations we were having on this public scale about sexual assault and sexual violence, one response to that among women, particularly women in a, you know, hierarchical 
white supremacist society, one response to that is to fall back on just world Ooh, but theory. But these are such strong words, and I'm already feeling it. You know, but like really, white supremacist society, really? Yeah, those are hard <laughs> words for people. To, they are hard words to consume. But, I mean, I mean, let's let's find out how how callers respond to that. But here's another difference I might like to to pull out and just sort of throw out there for discussion and. and to Collier as well to, to come in on. Uh, we've been talking a lot about differences across the series between European and US politics. And one thing that has struck me, having sort of covered a bit of both for a lot of years, is that the defining questions, uh, abortion rights, legal standing of abortion, is much closer to the heart of the debate in America and defining parameters of feminism. Though in fairness, Soraya, you did rather challenge that view that it should only be the women's issues that, that you know that, that are primarily what we're focusing on. So why do we think that is? If we look at Europe, we find that abortion is definitely a part of the debate, but there are other things, perhaps workplace rights, which seem to trumpet, small t trumpet, when it comes to the way that we see feminism. Either of you, just, you know, do you have a take on that? Collier, does that sort of strike a, a chord with you? You think one thing is perhaps more foregrounded? Um, I'm sorry. I think I kind of missed. Well, I think the question... So can I... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think that the the notable difference, the thing we really can't avoid talking about is American religiosity. And so, you know, Trump mm. got something like You think that might be driving it? Well, I think that that makes a huge difference because... We have this culture um, that is intensely religious in a way that a lot of European countries no longer are. And so even if you think of the way we uh, treat abortion as a woman's health issue or not, um, in Europe, abortion is part of regular health services. It's not segregated in its own space. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not something that... You know, in the United States, we're still sort of operating under a system in which a normal human body is a male body that doesn't reproduce in this way. And so in order for us to get health care that is relevant to having a human female body, it's somehow an exception or a disability. Um, and it's, you know, it's not integrated into normal life or integrated into medical care. And that comes directly from very religious ideas. I want to ring some callers in here, but before we do that, I don't want to leave the sort of the question about white supremacy and these big words hanging out there because that's a lot of content. And so, Collier, I want to put to you the point that Anne seemed to be raising there, which was that, you know, those are big words to say, white supremacy. You write about the existence of white supremacy in our politics. And I guess I put to you, why do we need to say that? And when is it useful and when is it not? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that um, in this context, it's pretty useful. Uh, Donald Trump, um, throughout his campaign, sometimes more overtly, sometimes covertly, um, was preying on um, very sort of old, uh, historic... Manif- uh, racist ideas and um, and and that's how he he ultimately um, I mean that's up for contest but I think there is no contest that he he um, he won won this 
this um, presidency, at least in part based on that. Um, and so I think, you know, you just got to say it. You just got to say, um, call a spade a But spade. there can be echoes of unpleasant things that don't uh, amount to being white supremacist. It also sounds like it's not very democratic in one way or the other. And we've reflected it What's a bit not in the conversation. Democratic about and in the earlier call, people what? did vote. What's not democratic about using the term white supremacist? Well, I think supremacist does sound like you don't have much public say in the social order around you. And in this case, there was an election, people did have a say. Right, and I don't think you? that a lot of people um, in this country are still struggling. I mean, I think this mm. country is, has a really racist and dark underbelly, um, dark underbelly of racism, and that we are still dealing with with that issue, um, you know, enough to, to elect Donald Trump. Dare I say that we see in this conversation some of the very divides we're talking about within the feminist movement also, by the Indeed. way, that uh, that for Collier, as a woman who identifies as African-American, um, I certainly I, as, as a black man, you know, I think, and some of Bulawayo, our caller earlier, I think would say, you know, this is a crucial part of the conversation uh, is to be able to talk about white supremacy um, and figure out how to talk about it in a way that uh, that, that brings us together. But let's bring, let's bring some callers in here. Let's go to Jace in Westchester, New York. Jace, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This is a very great conversation um, to to be had, and I think it's really important. Um, I personally identify as a non-binary gendered person. Uh, My pronouns are Faye, F-E, sorry, F-A-E for she, and Fair, F-A-E-R for her, plural for uh, her, Fair. Anyway, um, the original um, topic you guys asked callers was, you know, how your views on your own gender were affected upon the the election. And, you know, it's it was really interesting for me and really difficult um, for me in particular because I came out um, as non-binary um, during the campaign. And I was also a Bernie supporter. I was, uh, I ended up voting for Hillary uh be a process of elimination and lesser of two evils, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, I remember when when Trump got elected, I, I cried to my mother, am I going to have to go back in the closet? I'm afraid for my safety. Not only am I non-binary, but I'm pansexual, which means I'm attracted to people of all genders. Um, so it was a very uh, terrifying thing. And, you know, on the topic of feminism and women's health care, um, one big thing that is really shaking the transgender community is the the loss of their their health care uh, potentially to the point where I've seen Facebook pages uh, geared towards linking up transgendered individuals with uh, cisgendered individuals uh, in order for them to to give them their prescriptions so they can still get their hormones. God forbid um, they lose their health care and their their ability to uh, their access to their uh, Direly important uh, hormones because you know think about this if you know all these transgendered individuals lose their hormones all of a sudden their access and their access to their health care there's a, there's already a huge mental health issue in this community as is and say they lose their access to these things it's going to, we're going to see a huge jump in the rate of uh, suicide among transgendered youths and just a, a big jump in in uh, mental health issues Jace, among transgenders. Jace, can I ask you, 
you said you were afraid you would have to go back into the closet. And I have to say, we, we heard a lot of people, callers uh, uh, on this show and on previous shows right after the election, call in and say similar things. So did, have you had to go back into the closet in any way? Have you adapted your behavior in any way? You know, um, I, one very difficult thing when you come out as non-binary is when you introduce yourself to somebody and say, hi, my name is Jace. I am a non-binary person. Please use fair fair pronouns. That is a very difficult thing um, with this election aside. So when this came into play, when Donald Trump, you know, uh, became elected, uh, I did face a lot more uh, vocality on, well, make up your mind. You're just confused. This is just a phase and people calling me it and things like that. So, yes, to a large degree, um, uh, first, when I meet certain people, yes, I'm definitely more careful to... Uh, saying I am non-binary. I will generally, I won't correct people as uh, openly as I used to if they, you know, uh, call me by the wrong pronouns. So, yeah, I have uh, taken a, a big step back, and that is, you know, being able to tell people and correct people on my pronouns and my gender is a huge, huge step because, uh, towards me accepting who I am and, and really embodying it. Thanks for that, Jace. Let's go to Marie in Kansas City, Missouri. Marie, welcome to Indivisible. You are on the air. Oh, thank you. Um, since the election, um, I personally am voted for Donald Trump, and I have no regrets voting for him. Um, I think some of the things that have come out of his mouth are irresponsible. But on the whole, I think he's, he's doing a good job. And I think one thing that people fail to take into consideration is how the Christians really suffered the past few years with the persecution, and I mean persecution, when someone can't just simply operate a small business and can't, and asking them to go something, to do something that goes against their conscience, you know, like these poor people that are trying to, a small, small family businesses that are operating a bakery or, or a floral shop, you know, and then getting sued and losing their livelihood is is ridiculous and another thing i think the whole transgender thing is a big is a nightmare and i think these people are severely psychologically well disordered. marie i'm gonna stop you there because it's we're not inviting you to talk about other people which i'm inviting you to talk about yourself but um we appreciate the call uh let's go to one more tony in jacksonville in jacksonville beach florida tony we have just a few minutes before the or a few seconds before the break can you chime in on you're on the air yeah. and let us know what you're thinking Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, first, I want to say I really appreciate all the work that you guys do. Um, it's very important, and I love hearing the program. Um, so I'm a white, cisgendered male, um, and the way that I became a feminist, I can remember the exact moment. I was 18 years old, and I was driving uh, a young woman home from a party, a very close friend of mine. She'd had a bit too much to drink, and she trusted me enough to tell me about a very vicious sexual assault that she experienced and it was at that exact moment after she finished her story that the whole feminist narrative that i had that i had heard about and the whole narrative of you know there's a I'm, real problem oh we had we're gonna have to cut you off for a second tony we'll be right back we're gonna have to take a break This is Indivisible, 
Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. And Tony, well, we cut, I think we cut Tony off before, right before the break. So let's, let's let him finish real quick because uh, he was in the middle of a story. And, uh, and, and sorry, I, I mistimed it, Tony, and I, I had to cut you off in the middle of it. It is. Hey, okay. I actually, I work in radio as well, so I totally understand. <laughs> Ringer. So, um, I, I remember the exact moment I became a feminist uh, was I had a very dear friend of mine that trust me enough to describe to me in very visceral detail a vicious sexual assault that she had suffered. And the the thing that she said to me that hit me the most was that when she tried to talk to her father about it and her brother about it, there was this sort of willful disassociation from it. And I remember in that exact moment thinking, this is a problem that I, as a cis male who has direct influence on other males around me, it is something that it it is not uh, just an obligation, but even more than that, that a mission that I have to undertake to understand what happened, Mm -hmm. um, understand what is happening here. And what it opened me up to was the next, um, maybe maybe the next four years leading up to the Trump election, what it created for me was it opened up this intersection intersectionality where I began to discover, you know, issues in the LGBTQA community, uh, specifically issues in mental health um, with LGBTQ youth. And my perception... But it was interesting, if I could just, just jump in there, Tony, that, that there was yeah. a sort of one decider. Thank you, thank you very much for that story. And that, that was one... I suppose, a crystallizing moment for you. And one of the things I really wanted to, to follow up at you in, in this part of, of our show is where this leaves, and your experience uh, you know, was very telling, but where feminism is left by the rise of, of Trump more generally and feminism and, and populism. And it, it, it's possible that uh, you know, Donald Trump hasn't, hasn't quite had the, the, the road to Damascus kind of moment uh, that, that you were describing or just that he, he doesn't hear it if he does. Let's look, if we could, at what populism is in different guises. Do we think, for instance, that someone like Marine Le Pen, who is a populist, she says she's a populist in France, can she still be a feminist? Or is the far-right movement in the US just more inherently sexist? I'm genuinely curious about this as a, someone who is a, a bit of a... You know, crosses the Atlantic in, in both directions to right. Or is it a different kind of, of sexism? Can I throw that to, to Sarai? What do you think about that? So... You know, I think Marine Le Pen has been roundly rejected by French feminists. She she espouses right-wing ideologies and um, very traditional gendered values. Uh, her policies are very similar to the Trump administration's policies in terms of her stated um, mm. desire to cut funding. Um, when she talks about feminism, it's a very... Um, in, she does it in a very instrumental way. She's really often mainly talking about immigration, and she's using the same kinds of uh, border patrol narratives that we see in country after country after country. So, um, she I is, don't, a, however, a woman. I point this out because I'm very perceptive when I cover European politics. <laughs> oh, do, do, she is. Do we, 
do we not worry that we end up with a little bit where a lot of British feminists got with Margaret Thatcher, which was like, mm-hmm. she doesn't count because she's not one of us. She says no. the wrong things. She has narratives we don't like. Do, is there something that feminism needs to perhaps to think about and to broaden out? Because we can understand why people think Donald Trump, ghastly, no, you- macho man but it doesn't quite work when it's a woman does it well you know i think it's interesting because i think we fail all the time all over the place to make this distinction between individuals and the systems we live in right so there are many feminist men and we don't seem to talk about those in the same way as we talk about anti-feminist women and so it's entirely possible Mm -hmm. to see her as um a a woman who in the long scope of history will contribute possibly to to women being you know more represented with parity at some point but at the same time at this moment in history embody profoundly anti-feminist policies and so the idea well, they that they just mean a different thing to what you mean by feminism is that okay that's yes that's probably true too because there are a million different ways of defining feminism um, and one of the most corrosive ways i can think of is this idea that you know any decision that a woman makes is a feminist decision because she's a woman and so i think we fall into that trap with a with a politician like le pen I wonder if we really know what to make of the impact of Donald Trump on the American feminist movement to this extent. I and mean, we've already discussed uh, on the programme tonight that, that yeah, you can look at the demographics different ways. But there does seem to be a dividing line in one regard. Two thirds of non-white women uh, uh, voting uh, against Trump and uh, a third for. There are all sorts of different ways in which class and gender seem to be tangled up. What do feminists need to do to untangle it, just to become more appealing across the political piece? That would help see off Donald Trump, wouldn't it? Um, Well, first of all, I don't know if two-thirds of um, all black and brown women uh, voted against Trump. Um, I know 66% of Latinx women uh, voted for him. It is quite complicated. It's you're, yeah. you're, you're right to bring that up. But broadly speaking, as right. I was just looking at the data in front of me, if white women, white American women, sorry, voted by about two thirds to a third for, for Trump. So we can see that, you know, there's a big sort of skew in one direction. But sorry, do go on, Colleen. Um, no, I just, I think that um, going forward... Uh, there is a need to bring in women from the margins into the center of this conversation. Um, and that I sort of roundly reject, I, I'm, I find the, the conversation around um, who is a feminist and what is a feminist um, fairly banal at this point. I think that the, the more um, interesting and prevalent conversation is, uh, is should you do you need to have politics in order to be a feminist um to argue there there are several um women out there um who have written for the new york times um for harper's bazaar who have argued that feminism doesn't have to be political and i would say um that feminism is inherently political and so let us argue the politics of feminism but let us not say um that you know uh, you shouldn't be you can be a feminist and not be political I mean that would that's sort of the the main tenant of the, of the thing um, in my opinion and so I do think that um, in order to argue the politics of the thing you need to include 
all women, um, however they identify. And for way too long, so many of these women have been left out of the conversation. And so I think that um, there needs to be an uh, extra effort um, to bring in uh, um, American Indian women, um, trans trans folks, and you know, it black sounds women, very effortful, and and I don't mean to say that disrespectfully, but I mean, if one finds oneself but saying these issues we need to do this, we need to bring it in. That well, yeah. sounds like people are not coming in of their own accord, and therefore the offer might not be right. It just might not be very attractive. Well, I think that um, you know we 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 spoke about Planned Parenthood before, right? Um, and Planned Parenthood, a disproportionate number of the women who use the services of Planned Parenthood are women of color. Um, And that's a wrinkle in the issue uh, that's an important one to discuss. And, um, And why is that? And it's because, you know, women of color... Uh, tend to be less well off. Um, and so their voices also need to be uh, centralized in the conversation. Um, and how we do that, you know, I'm not an activist or an organizer, so um, it's not up to me. I cover the things. But I do think that uh, it is imperative for the feminist movement going forward to uh, center these these women. Well, I mean, interestingly... Right. I want to play play some tape, actually, of a, of a really important moment that happened recently in our political culture that sort of gets to this, is that uh, we're talking about who gets brought in, but then I'm often just looking at totally different cultural movements in the first place. And and I'm thinking about Maxine Waters and uh, and this moment you mentioned Bill O'Reilly earlier, uh, and uh, and so there was this this striking moment where after Maxine Waters, who you know we sh- it should be said is uh, her veteran job politician. is a veteran Democratic politician with a safe seat, and her job is to pick fights, and so she was picking a fight, um, and Bill O'Reilly responded in a way that really upset a lot of people, and I think we have the tape of that. So he made fun of her hair. So she was on the floor um, talking about those, actually this very thing, talking about those who have been historically left out of this conversation and how they were going to fight, she and and others were going to keep fighting Trump. Um, yeah. and, and so he made fun of her hair and then she responded like this. I'm a strong black woman and I cannot be intimidated. I cannot be undermined. I cannot be thought uh, to be a friend of Bill O'Reilly or anybody. And I'd like to say to women out there everywhere, don't allow these right wing talking heads, these dishonorable people to intimidate you or scare you. Be who you are. Do what you do. And let us get on with discussing the real issues of this country. And I play that, you know, because I so right before the show, even I was on Facebook and I saw a friend of mine who had a birthday cake from the weekend and had that quote, I'm a strong black woman. I won't be intimidated written on her birthday cake. And this just has become such a massive cultural moment for black women. And what about it? I mean, on I guess on one hand, it was resonant always. But what about this particular incident? Why was this? Why has this resonated so much? Well, I'll say first of all, talk about black women's hair, and you'll get <laughs> you'll get a, a mouthful. It's certainly a comeuppance, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. But um, I think the so if I'm not mistaken, um, an activist uh, named 
Brittany, her last name escapes me, um, started a hashtag, Black Women at Work, um, and it was after Maxine Waters gave this, um, gave gave that um, stellar performance on Chris Hayes when she said, I'm a strong black woman. And and women, black women came out of the woodworks and started talking about their experiences um, of being put down in the workplace. And so I think that really Maxine Waters saying that was a, a bit of a rallying cry for, for all black women to come together um, and talk about uh their experience of uh, experiences of discrimination at the workplace. Now, the other side of this is, why do black women constantly have to feel as though they have to be strong? Um, and that was another another um, sort of resonating um, argument was, you know, Maxine Waters says, "I am a strong black woman," and yet. Um, and and yet she has to. She feels like she has to say that. That that that's her her job as a black woman. Of all people, Maxine Waters. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, I, so we, we're getting short on time, and I want to try to get as many more callers in as possible. So let's try to move through some of them. Uh, Laura in Brooklyn, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I was just really struck about a moment earlier in the in the show, which I wanted to call attention to. Um, the thing that sets the show apart to me is that it truly is an airing of different opinions, and there's room for a lot of different opinions. And yet, when one of the hosts mentioned that the United States is a white supremacist nation, she got batted down real quick. And I just want to say, like, it, I'm, I'm a white woman in Brooklyn, and I'm aware, as I hope most of us are, of the fact that that's not an opinion. That's a fact. This is a white supremacist nation. It's the mm. way we were founded, and it's the way we're Opinions currently run. Facts. That's not to suggest well, that there's anybody individually, you know, evildoers who are white supremacists. It's simply to say that our system is set up to favor white people, and that's white supremacy. So I wish that there would be sort of less of a knee-jerk shutting down of that fact. I should come in there because that was me. Um, I don't think I was shutting it down. I'm very happy to open it up. I think that it is it seems to me to be a view rather than a, a, a fact with a, a capital F, but I appreciate that these days so, uh, facts are up for a lot more questions. I think you can say that the societies are skewed without necessarily thinking that the word supremacist applies, but I'm sure that Twitter will, and many other ways of coming back to us uh, might have a different view, and I'd very much like to read them. And can I ask, this is Soraya, I, I was just Hi, wondering, Soraya. because I think that you and I had that exchange, and um, mm. I've been having these conversations for many years now, and as we said, these are difficult words for some people, and I'm genuinely curious as to what it is about the word supremacy that um, is, because is so I, I problematic. I do find the word problematic in American context if you're asking me my personal view and I'm saying I'm very happy I don't want to close it down it's absolutely right. not the spirit of this show to close down debate rather than the opposite but if you talk about something like South Africa under apartheid then I think the word sort of resonates more for me than looking at the plurality of America even in America that is going through the kind of stresses and challenges that we've been uh, looking at in Indivisible Right and I would say that you know um South Africa under apartheid that was that was um that was de jure segregation right that was mm -hmm. um 
apartheid. <laughs> uh, and in the United States now, you have a, a post-civil rights movement. Um, you have a, a sort of de facto um, institutionalized racism that uh, bleeds into every institution we have here in the United States, be it the criminal justice system, the healthcare industry. I mean, every single one uh, privileges uh, white men specifically. Well, we're going to have to move from that in order to squeeze one more call in. Let me put my vote in for explicitly talking about white supremacy, but I've made my career doing that. <laughs> Margaret in Cincinnati, Ohio. Margaret, welcome to Indivisible. You are on the air. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I just wanted to mention that I currently have two careers, one of which is teaching voice lessons and the other of which is working in public history. And what has been interesting for me is that in the field of teaching music lessons, women are often expected to serve in leadership roles and are expected to be strong, And whereas in public history, women do not serve in as many leadership roles, and it's very hard to assert myself in this particular career. And, and so, Margaret, what, what is your solution to that for yourself so and your life? I don't house? really have a solution um, except for um, trying to talk to as many women who are in the public history field as possible just to get ideas about ways to change discourse, um, ways to, uh, to approach um, people in other fields, and just ways to talk about how women can serve as models um, within the public history field and assert our intelligence about our specialties. Well, thank you for that, Margaret. Very quickly, Soraya, that seems like it connects to a point you were making earlier about we need to have uh, women in all fields of decision making. Right. I mean, I think we we don't we're not very introspective. And so we rank, depending on the source, 78th or 90th in the world for women's representation. And that's a serious problem for us as a nation. Um, But the same thing can be said. Um, in Silicon Valley, uh, Wall Street, universities, yep. um, you know, when I yep. when we use words like white supremacy, I am thinking factually about these percentages in which you S- know white sadly, men make up. Sadly, we will not be able to to to, to, re- to go back into this it. this one tonight, are we? <laughs> but we're going to have to leave it here. Thanks to Collier Meyerson of the Nation and Soraya Shamali of the Women's Media Center. You've been listening to Indivisible, and we are now partnering with StoryCorps. Let us know if you want to volunteer to interview someone in your life whom you disagree with politically. Just email us at listen at storycorps.org with the subject line, Indivisible Interview, describing who you want to talk to, why, and what you want to ask them. Tomorrow, tomorrow on Indivisible, you'll have Brian Lehrer. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. Talk to you next week. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.